For those who don't know me, my name is Jesse. I'm the worship pastor here. For those who do know me, I'm Jesse. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, I wasn't present at the meeting where passages from Luke were given out. But for some reason, I put in an advanced request uh, to preach on this particular passage. I think I did that because I'm fascinated by uh, the way this text has caused everything from profound disbelief to profound overbelief. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to walk through the text and uh, bring out some of its meaning. But I also feel led to talk today about how we approach controversial texts. And if this is not yet a controversial text for you, it probably will be by the end uh, of this talk. I, um, I, I, do, I did have a kind of 12 rating on this sermon, but there are kids in the room, so I'm going to make it a PG. I'm going to try and do, do what I can to uh, moderate some of the things. But anyway, last week, uh, Carol was preaching from uh, earlier in Gabriel's itinerary where he visits uh, the temple in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish religious life. And the recipient of that vision was Zechariah, a priest descended from Moses' brother Aaron. Now, if an angel is going to appear anywhere, it might as well be in that place and to that kind of man. The temple was considered to be a place where the realms of heaven and the realm of earth intersected and that God himself dwelled in that place. Gabriel, when he announces himself to Zechariah, says, I stand in the presence of God, which means he's simultaneously in the presence of God and on earth with Zechariah. That event is of great significance in the religious history of the Jewish people, and it's adorned by all the appropriate uh, trappings of such a significant moment, the temple, the priesthood. But in today's passage, Gabriel turns up in an insignificant little place called Nazareth. Because everybody knows where the temple is, Luke doesn't actually need to tell you, but here he needs to make some geographical references. Nazareth is about 65 miles north, as the angel flies, um, of Jerusalem, but if he had wanted to rest his wings and take the road, it would have, take, it would have been about 85 miles. For scale, that's a little further than Aberdeen is, uh, just from us here. But unlike Aberdeen, Nazareth really was a nothing little town with a population of maybe 450. Archaeologists uh, have discovered a large number of caves in the region that had been inhabited. So rather than living in a nice little house, we probably need to imagine that Mary's family has made themselves as comfortable as possible, basically in a hole in the wall. Surely the message that Gabriel brings here is of lesser importance than the first message. His first stop was to a priest in the temple. His second stop was, by comparison, nowhere to nobody. But this is a theme that Luke will play out over and over and over again. The greatest is least, and the least is greatest. But even here in Nowheresville, there's a little hint of greatness tucked into the details. Gabriel comes to this insignificant place, to this insignificant little girl, 
who nevertheless has a connection to the line of King David. It's been about a thousand years since King David was around, so God knows how many other hundreds of people could make exactly the same claim. But all the same, Mary was betrothed to a man who was descended from David, and so in her own small way, she had now become an absurdly tiny fraction, but a part nonetheless of the hope that was expected from the line of King David. Her being betrothed to Joseph is a stronger connection than what we think of in modern terms as getting engaged. Betrothal is essentially the first stage of marriage. Uh, It's a stage where you're not yet married, but you're as good as married. Uh, You're legally bound together by contract in a way that can only be broken by divorce or death. But between betrothal and marriage, the young girl would tend to live with their family until they were old enough to actually go through the marriage ceremony. Old enough in this context typically means puberty. We can therefore guesstimate that Mary at this encounter is about 11 or 12 years old. It seems crazy young to us now to be talking about marriage and childbirth at that age, but we mustn't leap to Uh, superimpose modern values on ancient cultures. It is possible, if it helps you, that the age was connected with an insanely high infant mortality rate and the longest possible period of fertility was desired. But it's into the cave of this preteen that Gabriel pops in and says, grace, which in this context essentially ought to be translated, hello. He then calls us something which has caused no end of theological fuss. And here's where we get into some controversy. In our English Bibles, Gabriel would probably call something like favored one. The Greek word means something a bit more clunky, like one upon whom grace has been bestowed. But when this word comes into English by way of Latin, it is translated full of grace. And this led to a theology of Mary not being only a recipient of God's grace, but also being a source of grace in and of herself. I read in the news uh, that in Argentina a couple of weeks ago, there was a failed assassination attempt on the vice president there. And she believes that it failed thanks to God and the Virgin Mary. She sees Virgin Mary almost as um, a source of grace and goodness equivalent to or somewhat Uh, underneath, but not far from where God is. It seems odd to us in the Protestant tradition, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came from here. It's one of the many things that became established in tradition through attempts to faithfully understand the Bible. But anyway, that's just a side note, and we've got more controversy to come. (laughs) After addressing Mary as a favored one, Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. Now, it's at this point that Mary becomes greatly perplexed, and she wonders what on earth this greeting means. And I wonder what's so curious about the greeting that should perplex her. I would be more perplexed about the fact that a shiny guy with wings just turned up in my cave. However, this has been, my understanding has been helped by one of my favorite Bible scholars called Paula Gooder. She says, being assured of God's favor by an angel feels like the two-edged wish of the 
Chinese proverb that says, may you live in interesting times. Being favored by God means that your life is about to be turned upside down. And so this makes the last part of Gabriel's greeting even more significant. He says, the Lord is with you. God has bestowed favor upon Mary, and that means she's about to be asked to carry out some unbearable task. But at the same time, God makes a promise that he will be with her through it all. And so Gabriel tells her not to be afraid before he then drops the bomb on her. You're going to become pregnant with the Messiah King. Wow. This tenuous, thousand-year-old connection to David just suddenly became a lot less tenuous. And Mary might be young, but she knows how things are supposed to work. She can't get pregnant without, you know... And she reminds Gabriel of this. She says, how can this be? Depending on what you've learned about this event in the past, there's a little subtlety of language here that is important about the virginal state of Mary. This is a bit of a biblical studies rabbit trail, but bear with me. It's been claimed in the past that the word which the Bible uses for virgin can just as equally mean young woman or young girl, and so makes no claims over her state as a virgin or otherwise. This then comes as a relief to people who want to defend Christianity but feel really uncomfortable whenever it comes to anything miraculous, anything that would require direct divine intervention. Now, putting aside the fact that this is an absolutely ridiculous position from which to defend Christianity, because God, being God, can do whatever he wants, right? Let's look at this claim. Does the word mean virgin, or does it mean just young woman? The answer depends on which language you're looking at. In Matthew's version of these events, if you could pop that verse on the screen. There we go. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the source of this prophecy is Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So far, so good. But Matthew and Luke are writing in Greek, and Isaiah is written in Hebrew. And although the Hebrew word that Isaiah can mean virgin, it can also mean young woman or just married, so not necessarily a virgin. The Greek word, by comparison, exclusively means virgin. And so the argument goes that the authors of the New Testament mistakenly took this uh, Hebrew prophecy and ran with it. Why would they have done this? I can think of a couple of reasons. One is that they simply misunderstood the text as they then went on to add further detail to it. One possibility is that they wanted to create an even more miraculous origin story uh, for Jesus than was factually the case. Or maybe they wanted to compete with Um, with other contemporary narratives concerning Roman gods who uh, who, uh, 
new human women and uh, gave birth to half-gods. Maybe they just wanted to cover up a potentially scandalous premarital pregnancy. But let me offer you another possibility. Let me suggest again that God is capable of doing whatever he wants to do. And we shouldn't be afraid to to believe the unbelievable, frankly. And let me also point out that the Hebrew word that can mean young woman can also mean virgin. Thirdly, since we're studying Luke's account rather than Matthew's account, we should note that he doesn't actually appear to reference Isaiah at all. And lastly, Luke doesn't lean on the Greek word for virgin at all. Our translations have Mary saying, how can this be since I am still a virgin? That's not actually what the text says. She's more explicit than that. She says, how can this be? For I have never known a man. Literally in the parlance of her times, I've never had sex with a man. She says nothing about her virginal state or otherwise. She talks about what she has or rather hasn't ever done. Now, before I get off this rabbit trail, the arguments get even more contentious still. What I've argued for so far is a virginal conception of Jesus. But the full doctrine that's known as the virgin birth goes significantly further than that. That claim is that Mary was not only a virgin at conception, but remained a virgin during, after, and since her pregnancy to the point at which she died a kind of perpetual virginal state. Now, I don't hold this to be true because I don't see anything in the text to support it. I believe in a virginal conception because I believe God is capable of doing that. But I also believe that Jesus was not an only child. But rather than argue this point, I'd like to get off this particular rabbit trail and step onto another one. I said that as well as some contentious issues, I wanted to talk about how we live with contentious issues in the scriptures. I'll tell you a story about something that happened in Spain 500 years ago. If you know me for longer than three minutes, I'll either mention the book of Revelation or, or I'll mention Saint Ignatius. 500 years ago in Spain, a man who would later become known as Saint Ignatius was at his family home in Loyola, experiencing extreme pain after having fought as a soldier in Pamplona. He had had one of his legs completely shattered by the impact of a cannonball. And over a period of many months in his family home, he was having his leg rebroken and reset several times, having protruding bits of bone sawn off without the aid of modern anesthetics. In that room, he experienced a powerful vision of Mary, whereupon he gave his life to Jesus. I myself visited that room uh, in North Spain while on sabbatical, and in fact, Jim and Rachel, our senior pastors, have just been there a few days ago. We agree that it's a very thin place. Somehow, the presence of the Lord is very tangible in that space. 
Ignatius was never really fully healed of his injury, but when he was able, he began a journey towards Barcelona with the intention of going to Jerusalem. Having been a soldier for one of the local lords in northern Spain, he was now intent on fighting for Jesus. He wanted to go to the land where Jesus had lived and walked, perhaps never to return, because it was and still is a highly contended space. He very likely had martyrdom on his mind. And on the road, he encountered a moor, that is a Muslim from North Africa. And as they rode on their horses, they fell into conversation. And they began talking for some reason about the virgin birth. The conversation became quite heated until the Moor picked up his pace so that they might once again become solitary travelers. Ignatius lost sight of the Moor, but as he replayed the conversation over and over in his head, he got angrier and angrier. He was angry with the Moor, but he was also disappointed in himself for having failed to adequately defend the honor of his lady. He resolved to catch up with the Moor and slay him with his sword for his insolence. But he came to a crossroads, and he didn't know which way the Moor had taken. He decided to give the decision to God by way of loosening his grip on the reins of his horse and letting the horse decide which way to go, whether to the left or to the right. And the horse ended up taking the narrower, rockier road of the two, and Ignatius never saw the moor again. And at the top of that winding road is a shrine of Our Lady of Montserrat. I also visited that location while on sabbatical. It's a mountain peak that looks very uninviting. It has these kind of jagged, sharp rocks that look like teeth on the top of the mountain peak. And inside the church there, 500 years ago, just as now, is a shrine to Mary with uh, an icon of the black Madonna, so Mary um, holding the Christ child. And when Ignatius arrived there 500 years ago, he spent the entire night before her praying. He laid down his sword and his dagger upon the altar there, relinquishing with those items the dreams and ambitions that he had had of being a valiant soldier, a valiant knight for Jesus and for his saintly mother. He resolved at that point never again to pick up a sword. He believed at that moment that God had shown him that the way of Jesus Christ, which he had vowed to follow, was not merely a switch of a soldier's allegiance, but an entirely new way of being. And in the following weeks, he let go of all his ambition to win souls by conquest and instead began writing what would become known later as the spiritual exercises. These were, these were and are a method of um, reflection for any individual to take up so that they might personally encounter Jesus. I'm personally going to be embarking on these spiritual exercises over the next nine months, as have countless thousands before me, and called them absolutely life-changing. Ignatius learned through this episode that the way of Jesus was to draw people to himself with love, rather than to drive people to surrender at the point of a sword. 
And as I reflected on today's passage in Luke, with all its areas of controversy, I felt that the Lord was inviting us to slacken our grip on the reins and instead let love guide our way. There are so many things that we hold on to as primary that are actually secondary or tertiary. And sometimes when we meet people who hold opposing opinions, we treat them as an enemy who needs to be driven to surrender to our point of view at the point of a sword. So whatever you believe about Mary, whatever you believe about the virgin birth, whatever you believe about anything, let's take the invitation Follow the example of Ignatius. Lay down our sword and choose instead to invite people to encounter with Jesus. So as we minister to one another in a moment, I sensed as I was preparing that God is calling us to first listen to the Holy Spirit and then make the response either of Mary or of Ignatius or of some combination of the two. The response of Ignatius is to take something that we've been holding on to, something that we feel is a key part of our identity, that we simply cannot live without, and make the choice to surrender it to Jesus, to let go, to put it down on the altar and leave it there. Are we willing to be as generous as Ignatius in surrendering all of our desires to Jesus and our defenses over to God? And the response of Mary is not just to give something up, but to take something up. Will we receive what God has to give us, even though we run the risk of disgrace and rejection? Even if the baby had been Joseph's, Mary's reputation would have been in tatters. But to bear the news that she was pregnant and not by her betrothed would have led to certain disgrace. And she is asked by God to willingly face this disgrace in order for God to bring his salvation into the world. And she does it with courage and dignity. Will we stand before God and say, like Mary, let it be to me according to your word? It's similar, isn't it, to Jesus' words in the garden. when He says, not my will, but yours be done. What are we willing, like Mary, to accept as a sign of God's dangerous favor upon us, accompanied always by the promise that he will be with us in whatever he chooses to give us? What mission will you accept? What burden will you pick up? Gabriel says nothing is impossible for God. So I ask this of you. If you know that you simply cannot fail, what would you do for God? If you know that he will be with you in whatever he gives you to do, what do you feel called to do for him? And the call today is to accept the movement of the Holy Spirit within us, the same Holy Spirit that birthed Jesus in Mary, the same Spirit meets us here when we pray together.
So we're going to stand and pray in just a moment. But as we do that, before we do that, it seems a good opportunity to remind you of some ground rules about prayer ministry in this church. Despite what your mother may have said about you, you're not an angel. As a consequence, I ask that you would refrain from pronouncing miraculous births. If you do feel the Lord giving you a prophecy of either births, deaths, or marriages, here's what I suggest you do. Write them down in your private diary and use them as a conversation piece between yourself and the Lord. When we come and pray with one another in a moment, If you've, if you've never been in this church, the way this works is uh, those who are members of home group will come alongside you, help to listen to and try and discern the voice of the Holy Spirit as, uh, for, for, for whatever you feel led to be prayed for. Why don't we stand and I invite you to come and pray. So let's just take a moment first to quiet our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal to us, is there something he wants to give to us? Some sign of his favor that will turn our world upside down, but which he promises to accompany us as we carry it out. Or is he asking you to put something down? Is there something you've been holding on to? Something that feels like you cannot live without? Let's ask the Holy Spirit that we might leave this room with, with nothing but him that he might be our all. Holy Spirit, come and tell us what it is you have to give us, what it is we have to put down. Let's just take a moment, just imagine yourself in that hole in the wall. A shiny man with wings standing in front of you. Saying, grace, favored one, the Lord is with you. Or imagine yourself like Ignatius. feeling that terrible anger, righteous anger, like a ball of tangled yarn that's just sort of stuck in it, inside him, and he just picks it up, puts it on the altar, and changes his life. What do we need to let go of that is just keeping us bound up in knots, 
because we've treated it as important and indispensable. So will we now take the example of Mary or of Ignatius and say to God, let it be according to your word. Not my will, but your will be done. In the name of Jesus.